Let's pray. God, forgive us when we come to you with unrealistic expectations. God, prayer is our, it's a function of relationship building. And yet so few of us do it and more of us ask questions about what we're supposed to do. I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning, you'd speak to our hearts and to our minds. And as we look into the Old Testament to see what prayer looked like then, when we listen to the words of a mother crying out to you and your response and her response, I pray, Lord God, that we would realize that prayer is not a distant thing. It's not a long-distance phone call. It's exactly what Talia had said. It's a, it could be a thousand steps away from you. It could be a thousand days since you've prayed. It's been a, it could be a thousand days since you've actually thought about God. But one day, one in one moment, you can call out to God and he answers. God, I thank you. Thank you that you are here. Thank you that you listen. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. And thank you so much for joining us uh, during our March break uh, um, Uptown Community Church. We have a lot of family members who are traveling this week, and they're going to warm weather, so we hope that a hurricane hits Florida or something, because that would be exactly... We, should we pray for a hurricane? No, we don't want a hurricane. How about just rain? Lots of rain. That's what we'd want. I want the people to go down to Florida, come back paler than they came, then they left Canada. Okay, we are going to continue on a series we started off last week on this idea of prayer, and I'm calling the series Wireless. Now, the reason I'm calling it Wireless is because we need to kind of rethink this idea of prayer. And I've told you time and time again that uh, prayer is so important, but the problem is we think so little of it, and we don't really approach it the way the Bible talks about it. So the series is kind of trying to unpack that. Let's recap what we talked about last week to make sure we're all on the same page. Last week, we talked about the problem of prayer. And I said to you that really what prayer is, is many things, but the main problem of prayer is we come to it with wrong expectations, right? We come to it, we, we come to God with the grocery list. We we, 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 we speak to God only when we want something, right? It's this idea of me. I, I realize a lot of what we do in Christianity in North America today is really narcissistic. It's, it, you know, oh, the worship. Oh, well, you know, it's not perfect or it's not my favorite song. I'm not going to sing. Well, I'll only engage in God if I'm in some tropical country with, you know, a different ethnicity. Or I'll only give to God when I have extra money left over. Or I'll only serve if I got time. None of that ever happens. It never happens, right? It's... What I'm finding more and more, and especially as I study monastic teachings, and I look back in ancient times how they viewed their relationship with God, that time and time again it comes back to sacrifice. That when we, with the best of intentions, we say, God, I want to do, accomplish this or I want to do that. But we don't carve out any time. We don't create any space for that. And we're surprised when it doesn't happen. So all these type of things we've said when we, in our prayer life, like, you know, is God listening? Does God even care? Um, and, and, and we really kind of go through that list, and I think we can all say at some point in time we have felt that. We looked at uh, Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 to 18, and I said to you, these three Hebrew boys teach me more about God in this one little moment in time than I think that I've seen in many uh, other chapters of the Bible. So remember, these three Hebrew boys stand before King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Babylonian king, he's just destroyed the Israeli army, he's just, he's wiped them out, and he's taken these young men, these young leaders, future leaders of Israel, to Babylon. 
where they stand now before the king, where the king is going to try to infuse in them Babylonian culture. Forget Yahweh. Let me show you the pantheon of gods we have to offer. Right? And these three Hebrew boys look up at the king and they say this. Our God is able to save us. And that's the part that most people go, yeah, God's able to save us. Woo, yeah. And we know the rest of the story, but they didn't. Because their next line indicates that. They say this, that even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship your God. And that's really, I think, all of Christianity explained right there. What can God do? Everything. What is his power capable of doing? Anything. But what will God do? We're not certain. And I said to you that even in the uh, EBF series, right, the evidence-based faith series, which, by the way, is, is up online if you uh, if missed any of it. But I said to you that when I went online and started reading a lot of these um, atheist blogs and, and former Christians, the, the used us, I used to go to church, I used to believe in God. What the, the turning point for many of them was this moment in time, this crisis point moment in time where they called out to God and they didn't get the answer they wanted or no answer at all. And in that moment in time, they say, well, God's not real. He's not going to listen to me. He's not going to do what I say. He's not real. Now, we can kind of go, well, you know, that, that's ridiculous. However, we've all said that. In the long, dark nights of our souls, when, when we're in the midst of the storm, we've called out to God, and we want nothing more than something miraculous, something to answer, something to take place that will alleviate the pain and the suffering that we or someone we love or care about is feeling. But the problem is, God doesn't answer or even not the way we think. It's like when a tragedy happens around the world, and people are saying, praying for this country, these people. And again, I have itchy fingers sometimes on social media. Goodness, I'm glad I don't actually actually uh, say anything, but part of me goes, what are you praying for? What exactly are you praying for? And who are you praying to? And what are you exactly going to say in that moment? So we have to kind of rethink this idea of prayer. We said that last week, that prayer, when we, whatever you think about prayer, you have to think of two things with prayer. First, it's relational, and then it's positional. What I say about relational is that really prayer is spending time with God. Spending time with God. Just, that's it, right? That's what prayer is. Prayer is creating this awareness in our days that God is near us and with us and hears us. But the second thing about God is it's positional. And what I mean by positional is you have to remember, he's God, you're not. I know a spoiler alert, uh, just to be clear here, I know, a, you know, hashtag, uh, what, I'm not God? Uh, I, I know that we have in our culture this idea that we are gods. And we are surprised when God doesn't respond the way we think he should. And so the positional part of it comes down to this realization that we look up to God and we say, Lord, this is what I want. This is what I need. And God says, but you don't understand this is not what I'm going to do for you because if I answer this prayer, you don't understand the repercussions. And in that moment, we are left with this uh, dilemma. So we call the series uh, Wireless. Last week, we looked at this idea of the history of wireless. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at a little piece of technology that guided astronauts to the moon. So I want you to take a look at this uh, on the screen there, the AGC, the Apollo Guidance Computer. This is the, this is the computer that took the Apollo missions to space and to the moon. Now, this thing looks like a calculator or a really, really old uh, cell phone, right? But this is the technology. This was the most advanced technology of the day that was able to take astronauts to the moon. And this is how they would program it. The computer uh, used an operating system which allowed astronauts to type in nouns and verbs that control their spaceship. 
<laughs> Could you imagine that? You are in the middle of space. You know, the earth is, is below you. Space is above you. You're petrified. This piece of technology is not going to work. And you've got really uh, like, like, a, like a calculator to kind of get you to where you need to go. What's the noun to go left again? I can't remember. Is it dog? No, cat. We're going to go towards it. We're going to hurl towards the sun, right? Like it's incredible to think that this technology was what took people to the moon. Now, if for a comparison uh, sake, um, the iPhone 6, right? Uh, again, BlackBerry and or whatever we want there, but smartphones, right? Um, the iPhone 6 clock is 32,600 times faster than the best Apollo-era computers and can perform instructions at 120 million times faster. So the thing that you have in your pocket uh, or strapped to your belt or wherever it is, with this smartphone that you have is more powerful than the spaceship's computer that took it to the moon. That should tell you something. That should tell you that we have way more technology power than we need. And, to, and, and maybe that's why we're always glued to it when you, when you see people kind of staring at it. Like, maybe that's the reason why, because we're just so marveled that if we could hook this up to a rocket, we could go to the moon as well, too. And that's not even close to being true. So this idea of wireless is, how do we look at prayer in a different way to kind of give us a fresh understanding of it? So this morning, what I want to do is first, uh, I, I want to, let me unpack where I want to go this morning. I want to take a look at the Old Testament and look at the Old Testament idea of prayer. Because I said to you that what we have to do is we have to go back in time to understand prayer. Because the way prayer is approached today is dysfunctional. It's absolutely dysfunctional. And it's no wonder why uh, people don't pray. In recent studies, when people look at, uh, you know, Christianity in North America today, one of the questions they'll ask, you know, like, how often do you attend church? Right, so now when I when I was growing up, to be a regular attender of church meant Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and midweek Bible study, and whatever small group or whatever else you do. You if you didn't attend church like four or five times a week, that was irregular, and people were like worried about your salvation. Now they're saying a regular attender of a church could be one in four Sundays. One in four Sundays. Now you're like, yeah, that's me. That's, yeah, 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 I'm all over that. You have to understand, sorry, that is irregular, okay? That is not really regular, but that is the new normal that churches are dealing with. The other questions they ask are things like, okay, so if you, if you believe in God, how often do you pray? Now, what's surprising is people tend to pray, but they don't really have a specific, uh, specificity of a prayer. Now, what do I mean by this? People walk around thinking, thinking spiritual thoughts, whatever that would be, but when it comes to actually a discipline of prayer, like when do you pray? Well, you know, whenever. I don't know when whenever is on the clock, so can you explain, help me understand when is whenever, right? So how do you pray? Well, you know, I stuff, right? So this is abstraction, this idea of prayer, but there's not really like how do we pray and what does actually look like? And I think when we go into the Old Testament, we will see what prayer looks like. So in Genesis chapter 3, we have this statement, right? And this is Genesis chapter 3, you realize it's the fall, right? This is when humanity chooses to go against God. This is when Adam and Eve decide, you know what? We're going to choose our way rather than God's way. Right? So, but there's this one passage, and it's so interesting because it says this, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So what we see is, is this idea that God would walk amongst his creation to have a conversation with them. And this was the earliest form of prayer because it's basically a conversation. And it's not until the end of Genesis chapter 4, right? Genesis chapter 4 is they are now ejected from Eden. And now they're now trying to survive in this harsh world outside of God's provision. And the very last verse is this. At that time, the people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the first time the Bible mentions prayer. 
This is the first time that we see this idea of prayer in the Old Testament, right? However it has been approached now, this is, the, this is when it happens, and rightfully so, because they are praying, right, after out of the garden, and the prayer might be like, what do we do now? Can I eat that? Uh, how, do I, how do I do this? Like, like, they're now trying to survive in a world that is harsh and cruel, and, and of course now sin infects everything, and the curse of creation is upon them. And so they now call upon the name of the Lord. So this is the first time when prayer is, uh, is seen. When, we took a look, when you take a look at the word prayer in the, in the Hebrew, you find something very interesting. The Hebrew word tefillah is generally translated into English as the word prayer. So in the Old Testament, when you're reading the word prayer, it's usually this word, tefillah. But this is not an accurate translation for for to pray means to beg, beseech, implore, and the like, for which we have a number of Hebrew words which are more accurately convey this meaning. So if you translate pray, which is, again, all these definitions, in the Hebrew, the actual word means something a little different. And it's actually not a completely accurate translation of this word. The Hebrew word tefillah comes from the, uh, the verb palel, which means to judge. We use the reflexive verb lehep, uh, Hallel, again, my Hebrew is not great, which also means to judge oneself. Thus, for the Old Testament and the Hebrews, prayer meant the time of prayer is a time of self-judgment and self-evaluation. So in the Hebrew context, when they were talking about prayer, it wasn't about saying something to God that he didn't know because they realized that God knows everything. They weren't telling God something. They weren't informing God something. They weren't instructing God on how he should behave. Instead, when they prayed, it was a moment for them to self-examine themselves. And that is actually how, when you, when you take a look at that idea of Old Testament prayer, when you start looking at the prayers of the Old Testament, you see this theme. You see this, this, this theme running through it of, of the realization that it's not about what I'm telling God. It's about me saying, what is my life like before God? What do I look like before God? And if you understand that, then you start having a different understanding of how they understood prayer. When you start looking through the Old Testament, you start looking at how they understood prayer. He's like, oh, they're not telling God something. They're not informing him. Instead, they're saying, I'm sinful. I have broken your promises. I've broken your law. I've, I have fallen. I've chosen things that are against you. And, and, and they would begin to examine themselves in the reflection of God's character and nature. And in that moment, they realize that, oh, prayer is a little bit different than that. So when we talk about prayer... There are different kinds of prayer. And um, I would say to you that there are five different kinds of prayers we see in the Bible. Now, one of the things you have to understand is whenever you categorize something, people are like, well, what about this one? That doesn't fit in there. I, this is a good general rule. And actually, um, this is also seen in the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church as well, too. They kind of break it down this way. And I actually thought um, their definitions, their way of breaking down actually was uh, quite good. Now, realizing as well, too, um, some prayers will have multiple of these in it, right? And so when I was reading one commentary, they said that if you think of prayer as a key, you don't use one key and walk around and use it. Like you're, the key that you locked your house and you don't stick that in your car, right? It's a different key. It says this is not what prayer is like, right? But now when you look at these five kinds of prayers, you're going to start seeing these definitions. You're like, wait a minute, that's not prayer. That's this. But if you understand this in the, in the context of the Old Testament and throughout the Bible, this is how they understood prayer. And so without realizing it, many of you are praying this morning when you understand these definitions. And so we're going to take a look at these five, and then I'm going to take a look at an Old Testament prayer, 
by, by an individual. It's not a very well-known individual. Um, her son is way more famous, but her story is actually very interesting and how she approaches prayer. And we're going to get that in a second. So there's five different kinds of prayer. And the first kind, I think, is what we, is, is called blessing and adoration or, or worship. So when you look in the Old Testament, and especially throughout the Bible, um, worship was seen as prayer. So let me kind of give you some, uh, a definition of how we see uh, blessings and adoration. Blessing expresses the basic movement of Christian prayer. It is an encounter between God and humanity. The prayer of blessing is our response to God's gifts because God blesses the, the human heart in, can in return bless the one who is the source of every blessing. Adoration is a first attitude of man, acknowledging that he is a creature before his creator. It exalts the greatness of the Lord who made us and the almighty power of the Savior who sets us free from evil. So blessing and adoration is this idea of worship. And in the Old Testament especially, they saw worship as prayer. So you sat down this morning, you stood up, and the worship team led you through songs. But what if I said to you, this is actually just a way of singing prayers? What if I said to you that the, the, the words that you say, one of the things that kind of frustrates me about uh, worship today is we sing songs, but we don't actually think about the words we're singing. If you just stop for a second and said, oh, wait a minute, what am I singing? That song, Alabaster, right? Like, it's, it's a great song. It's by Ren Collective. Um, the Irish got that one right. I don't know about anything else, but they got that one right. And the song, Alabaster, it's a joke because I have a friend of mine here this morning, a special guest who is Irish, but I call him Australian because I think he might be that too, but uh, that's a whole other story. Anyways, um, Ren Collective wrote that song, Alabaster, because it's a story of the woman crashing the, 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 the alabaster perfume at Christ's feet. But when you dig a little bit deeper, it was, actually, it was actually Mary, right? Mary and Martha Mary. And she is anointing Jesus because she knows before almost his entire disciples that he's going to be crucified. This is done during the Passion Week. This is one of the events that happened in the Passion Week. So when you sing that song, now I'm giving you context for the song, but the reality is when you sing the song, you know, I, I am broken at your feet like an alabaster jar. Every piece of who I am, you know, calls out to your majesty, right? We sing these songs so haphazardly. You know, like, okay, we sing these songs. But do we actually stop to think about what we're singing? These are prayers. And especially in the Old Testament, this is how they understood prayer. Prayer was worship. And so when we understand that, we realize that there are different ways of looking at prayer. The next category of prayer is one that we're most familiar with. That's petition, right? Petition is simply um, asking, right? Prayers of petition are the type of prayer that which... We, uh, we are most familiar. In them, we ask God for things we need, primarily spiritual needs, but physical ones as well. Our prayers of petition should always include a statement of our willingness to accept God's will, whether he directly answers our prayer or not. Did you catch that? So petition is how we think of prayer, right? The asking part, right? And that's, if I was to say to you, what is prayer? It's like, I need to ask God for something. But what's interesting historically is that asking God for something physical was almost seen, is almost unheard of. There was a belief with humanity that your, you, how your life was, was what God kind of wanted, how bad or how good it could be. Tragedy, suffering, all that was part of the human experience. But what people prayed back then was for spiritual prayers, spiritual blessings. And, and it's interesting, when I was going through um, that prayer book I, I, I mentioned to you, a lot of the prayers were, Lord, take my mind and just set it on fire with your Holy Spirit. Help me to understand you more. Help me to understand your will and your way and your purpose. Prayers of what God can do inside of you. 
And so what's interesting is we've taken petition now saying, Lord, I need to get a good grade on this exam. I haven't studied, uh, but I need a good grade. Or I need money. Lord, I need a husband. I need a wife. Lord, uh, I need whatever, right? I need acne to go away. I need better hair, right? Uh, I need more followers on my Twitter account. Lord, if someone could just follow me back, that'd be... these are the things we pray for. We are petitioning God for, uh, and again, I would say to you, we are petitioning God to alleviate discomfort. When we talk about prayer, what we're really saying is, God, I'm really uncomfortable right now. Could you make me comfortable? You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's like you know, parents of kids, right? You're, you know, you're, 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 your child could be right next to the kitchen that asks you to get them water or something. Like, could you just go get it yourself? Well, no, I'm comfortable. I don't want to move. I've warmed up my seat. I've got my, you know, my blankie on. I don't want to move, right? That's kind of how we pray to God. Lord, I'm very uncomfortable right now. Could you turn the heat up a little bit? Can you go to the kitchen and get me some water? Uh, could you take away any suffering I have? Because obviously it's not fair that I suffer. Because obviously I love you, and so you know, anybody who loves you shouldn't suffer. Right? Because that's clearly in the Bible. Because everybody who followed you did not have any problems whatsoever. It worked out really well for them. Uh, especially your 11 disciples, you know, the, the ones who followed. They, they, all, they all made out like bandits. Right? So, God, I'm uncomfortable right now, so I'm going I'm to tell you. Oh, by the way, God, I understand that you're really busy. And you've got a lot of things to work on right now. I know, I'm sure there's a, a, a black hole somewhere that's really interesting right now. But I, just pay attention to me for a second. That's what we talk about prayer. And I've got to tell you something. If this is how you approach prayer you will always be dissatisfied. Always. Not just sometimes. Not just kind of. Always. If you think that God is there to alleviate discomfort, to make you happy, to increase whatever part of your life that you think should be increased, like, that's kind of how it is. I, I always say this to my kids, you know, when they ask me for money or, or for things, which they do on occasion or, or all the time. Um, I'm like... You know, like before they get to the, the asking part, right? Like every parent knows this, 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 this mom, right? Your kids will come down from their bedrooms like, hi, dad, you know, how are you? And you're like, okay, here we go. Here's a setup. Dad, you know, I just want to say how great you were. That sermon you preached or, you know, your hair's, you know, your hair's on point this morning. And you're, 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 you're like, okay, come on, get through it. What do you want? Well, dad, you know, there's a sleepover. You know, the, the ask gets there, right? If... If your relationship with somebody was something, them constantly asking you for something, and biologically you can do anything about it, so like, okay, fair enough. But if you had a friend who was only asking you for something, how long would that friendship last? I need money. I'm moving. Can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? And of course, in friendship, you do, there's, there's a give and take, right? There's a reciprocity to life. But if it's always asking, how, how tiresome would that relationship become? Then ask yourself, why do you think God feels differently with us? When it comes to our prayer life. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. And God's like, I want to give you stuff, but it's the spiritual stuff. It's the stuff you can't buy. It's the stuff that's not going to increase your social media presence or anything about you, but it's going to transform you into my image. And that's the stuff he really wants us to ask for, about. The third category of prayers we see in the Bible is one that we don't talk about a lot today, but it's a prayer that's called intercession. Now, intercession is kind of an interesting one because it's not something we really think about today. For those of us who maybe perhaps grew up in the church or came from a charismatic background, this is a word that we use a lot, but I'm not sure if we all kind of understand what it means. In a prayer of intercession, we are not concerned about with our needs, but with the needs of others. So in intercession, what we are saying is, God, not for me, not for anything uh, I need, but for this individual. I ask that you would act, that you would move, 
that you would glorify yourself, that you would, you would accomplish your will in their life. Prayers of intercession are prayers for perhaps if you have a loved one who doesn't know Jesus or, 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 or distance from faith. Say, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them. Right? Or if you, you have someone who is, who is struggling with an addiction or struggling with um, uh, an issue in their life, you're like, Lord, for them I ask. And that prayer is we are interceding, right? It's coming between us and God on their behalf. Right? We see this in Moses. We see this in the prophets. Time and time again, the nation of Israel would be acting, living a certain way, and they would come before God and say, God, I ask that you would for them. Not for me, but for them. So prayers of intercession uh, happen throughout the Bible there uh, constantly. Um, prayers of thanksgiving. What we have to understand is, right, is that being thanked is integral for a relationship. And one of the things we have to always say to ourselves is that um, Jesus died upon the cross. We're, we're going to celebrate Easter in, in, in a little bit. And Easter is this incredible gift that was given to us, right? And so the Easter story is this idea that God himself paid the penalty for our sins. We have a debt, a debt of sin, right? We, 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 we build up every day. And God himself walked to the cross willingly and said, I will pay the price for you because you were unwilling to. Many writers say, after that, what more could God give you? The gift of salvation, the gift of redemption, all of that is, is, is given to us on Easter. And that, and, that, and that one sacrifice. So what more could you ask for from God? Everything is right there. So what should be our primary response to such a person? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the breath that I breathe. Thank you for my life. Thank you. My life's not perfect, Lord, but such as it is, I thank you. I thank you that you hear my prayer. I thank you that you are near me. I thank you that you, you have not forgotten me. I thank you that I have a purpose and a plan in my life. And it may not be a purpose and plan for wealth and status and fame and fortune, but it's a purpose to be transformed into Christ's image, to pick, take up my cross daily to follow you. Right? We thank. We just thank God for all that he has done for us. And finally, uh, the prayer of praise. Now, Praise is a little bit different than what we talked about before because uh, prayer is a form of pr- uh, praise is the form of prayer which recognizes most immediately that God is God. It louds God for his own sake and gives him glory quite beyond what he does because simply he is. It shares in the blessed happiness of the pure of heart who love God in faith before seeing him in glory. By praise, the spirit is joined to our spirits to bear witness that we are uh, children of God. So praise isn't just thanking God, but praise is, Lord, you are God. You are holy, you are mighty, you are glorious, you rule all things, all things are in your hand. These are, these are words of praise, these are actions of praise. So when we talk about worship, blessing and adoration, and praise, without realizing it, those two categories of prayer were this morning, if you, if you understood that. And when you look through the Bible, you see this time and time again. And so we're going to look at a prayer right now. And we're going to take a look at it, and we're going to see all these elements. And we're going to, we're going to walk through this prayer. And almost um, all these elements are in this woman's story and this woman's prayer. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel. We're going to take a look at Hannah's prayer. And I'm going to give you a little context for Hannah and her story. And I'm going to give you a little background of what's going on here. Because you have to understand 
her plight, her situation, in order for you to understand her prayer. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 2, we see this. He, this is uh, Hannah's husband, had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. So stop right there. In ancient times, right, a, uh, whether, again, we don't want to be redactionist. By redactionist, I mean we don't want to go back and place a value system upon an ancient culture. Instead, we look at that culture, we say, this is how they were. Whether we agree with it or not, it's irrelevant. This is just how they were. Ancient times, right, a woman was, uh, her greatest uh, achievement at that time, in ancient times, in a Middle Eastern context, was children. And Hannah, at that time, was barren. She didn't have a, ch- a child. And for, uh, for a Hebrew woman, for actually for any woman in ancient times, that was considered something that, a, a bit of a shame. And so she, the story starts off for Samuel of, of Hannah's plight, and she is childless. Uh, in verse 6, it says, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Now, we know women get along well. We know women get along well, and we know men get along well. There's no teasing. There's no uh, belittling another person if they're not able to cheat. We don't do that. No, 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 no. What I love about the Bible, you know one of the best reasons why I think the Bible would be true? Because we read these stories, and we're going, oh, yeah, that happens. That happens today, right? Like, if you read other religious documents, all the people in them are perfect. They do perfect things. They wake up in the morning, and they're singing songs, and they're riding unicorns. Maybe not the unicorns, but you get the idea, right? The Bible is real people acting in real ways that we can, we ourselves go, yeah, I could actually see that happening. So the story of Hannah, there's two wives and one husband, okay? Don't even go there right now, okay? We, we'll, we can get to that at another time, right? But the one woman has children, and she flaunts it, right? She's like, come here, Horace, or I don't know what the kids' names are, right? You know, come here, Mahershala Hashbath, come here. She, you have to find Hebrew names. I can't say, hey, come here, Gus and, and Bob, right? And, you, know, you have to admit that, right? So she's got children, and so she has won the game of, of, of whatever co- competition these two are in. But it's not only that she had children. She looks to Hannah and says, I've got kids. My womb is plentiful. Although, don't ever, don't hashtag that. Uh, plentiful womb, UCC, don't do that. Um, but that's exactly what she's saying. She's looking at Hannah and saying, I have children, you don't, therefore I'm superior to you. Now, in the story, though, when we read the first chapter of Samuel, we realize that, that, that her husband loves her and actually does everything he can to alleviate this. There's nothing he can do. It's just the, the way of nature. He gives her an extra portion. He, he tells her he loves her, right? And that infuriates Penina as well, too. Like, shouldn't, she, shouldn't Hannah just be put off to the side because I'm the one with the bountiful womb? Yes, I said that again. And, and so why shouldn't I be the favored one? But instead, the husband sees Hannah's plight and says, okay, I'm so sorry, right? Uh, I don't know, but I, I love you. And I, you know, you, you not having children does not decrease your value um, or my love for you, right? And so being kind of going, okay, great. Verse 7, this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and, could, and would not eat. And again, this is a very human story. Nothing in this is ha- that, that's happening seems so odd to us. This is exactly what can happen in our culture today even. And again, not necessarily about the children part, but any piece of anything that makes us better than one another, right? we, we can sometimes... Uh, you know, this idea of the humble brag. You know, it's like we, we, we say something, but we're really bragging, but we're trying to be humble about it. 
You know, like, oh, I'm so blessed to have this car. Really? Yeah, I'm so blessed. I'm like, okay, you know, you, you can just stop saying these type of things, right? I, I actually almost want to create, like, a Facebook uh, or a Twitter account that just goes and calls people out these humble breaks. Like, come on, get over yourself. But I don't because I have, I have a life. Okay, so look at verse 10 now. In verse 10, this, this is the beginning of Hannah turning towards God. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Just take a look at her emotional state. There's nothing she can do about her fact that she doesn't have children. Right? There's just nothing. And you see the timeline year after year after year. Right? So we know that this is something that, that it, it just it, it, it affects her deeply. Right? And so we see this in the, in the scriptures that she is very, she's, she's absolutely broken in this moment. Verse 13 says, Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips are moving but her voice was not heard. Such is the anguish of her prayer. In her heart, she's just crying out to God. And her lips are moving, but nothing's coming out. That is how, that is the depth of her pleading before God. And again, year after year after year. Right? This woman, she has one prayer before God. Right? One prayer, Lord, that you would give me children, that you would, that you would, that you would, uh, that you would give me a child. Right? And so we see this in verse 13. Now look at verse 15 and 16. So there's a priest there, right? And he sees Hannah, and, she's in, and he's like, what's wrong? Are, are, are you inebriated? Are you, are you drunk? What's, what's going on here? And now look at her response. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I have, been, I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and prayer. Uh, anguish and grief. So, Hannah, um, Hannah is praying the same prayer, but she's not just praying it. I wish our words had a little bit more emotion behind them sometimes. Right? I wish that when we sang songs, we would sing it and actually feel it. And I wish our prayers would have the same way as well, too. That we wouldn't just say, Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for all we've done. And thank you that, uh, thank you. Okay, amen. Right? I wish that there was a little bit more emotion behind our prayer. And I don't, I'm not trying to tell you that that's the secret trick or, or whatever to get to God to, to listen to you. But I do say that when we pray with that emotional component, we are bringing our entire being to, prayer, to, to bear before God. And so Hannah is that person. She is, she is bringing her entire being. Now, in ancient times, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, there was one place, it was called Shiloh, that people went to worship God. But you didn't go there every day because you, if you lived far away, you'd go once a year. It's like a pilgrimage to the temple of the Lord. You'd bring your, you'd, you'd, you'd bring your, uh, your offerings and your prayers before God at the temple of, uh, of the Lord in Shiloh. So this is happening year after year because once a year, she goes up with her family to there to offer prayers before God. And so you see the timeline here and you see what it is there, what, what's going on. Now, here's a, here's a happy ending. Hannah has a child. She has a child. She says to God this, if you give me a child, I will give him back to you. If you bless me with this child, I will give him back to you. It's a very important moment because the child we're talking about is the prophet Samuel. The prophet Samuel is going to play a huge role in the Old Testament. 
right? If you were to say, you know, where are some important individuals in the Old Testament? Elijah, Samuel, uh, David, right? Moses. There's, there's individuals that kind of rise above the rest and have something that's very important to say, right? Samuel is that individual. Now, remember, Samuel is also going to be a person that is going to be the maker of kings, right? He's the guy that's going to anoint David. He's the guy that's going to pick Saul. See, he is, he's an individual that is going to play a huge role in Israel's history. So the prayer that Hannah prayed was an important prayer because God took that and used that. Now, let me show you something here. Chapter 2 is where we see Hannah's prayer. And her prayer is a prayer of praise. So we know, we don't know the words that Hannah prayed, but basically she said, God, if you would bless me, I will give him back to you. Now look at chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, because this is when we get to see Hannah's prayer, right? This is where we get to see this young woman calling out to God and now rejoicing in what God does. It's in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it says this, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted up. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Um, one thing here real, real quick. When you see the Lord is my horn, it's a very interesting statement. We don't tend to use it today. What they're, what they're talking about is in, in um, and again, I keep using the word in ancient times, but the Bible is an ancient document and sometimes we need cultural understanding so we understand what they're saying. The horn is something you would lift up and you would blow through. It would be a call to the tribe, to the people to come together, right? No cell phones, no ways of sending things out. And you could send a runner for sure, but sound travels faster. So you would go up to a very high place and you'd, you, you would uh, sound the horn and people would hear it going, oh, it's a call to whatever, call to war. Uh, there's an enemy uh, going out. And so we need, we need to go back to our village and get our weapons. We have to prepare for battle. We need to defend ourselves, whatever it would be, right? Hannah's saying something very important here. She says, listen, okay, uh, my heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord, my horn is lifted high. In other words, I'm going to proclaim to everybody who God is. I'm not just going to say to a couple of people. I'm not just going to tweet out to my, you know, five followers. I'm going to go up to the highest place, and at the top of my lungs, I'm going to blow this horn, and I'm going to say, God is God. He has heard me. He is, he is with me. He, he, I'm, I'm proclaiming it to everybody. In order to combat our grocery list, before God, we must start by reminding ourselves about who God is. What, is. what does Hannah do at the beginning? Adoration, blessing. Before she comes to God with her prayer, before she says, this is what I need, she starts off by saying, God, you are God. And sometimes I think if we could just stop before we get to the petition, here, God, this is what I need, right? This is where the whole idea of, uh, of Santa Claus has become very interesting, right? Here's my list, Santa, Right? Here's my list, God. Now, make it happen. Oh, if I don't get it on, on Christmas morning, well, we're going to have a conversation, right? Uh, and so the, Hannah starts off her prayer with this beautiful, beautiful image of just rejoicing in who God is and rejoicing in what God has done for her. And before she's telling God anything, before she gets to that point, she's saying, Lord, you are great. You are gracious. You are compassionate. You are who you are. Who you are. Look at verse 3. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. After she prays, after she praises God, she humbles herself. And she says, be careful. 
I, I think that we need to kind of be reminded of this. We have to have a stance of humility before we come before God. This is not our BFF. This is not uh, God is my homeboy. This is not, uh, you know, God is my best friend type of thing. This is, this is God. And to the Hebrews, their view of God was mingled with a bit of fear. Because when they read the stories of the Old Testament, they see a God who is beyond their understanding, who acts in ways they don't quite understand. And in that, they go, okay, let's just be careful. Let's just be humble. Let's make sure our spirits are in the right place before we go before God. And so Hannah, in this statement, is saying, for the Lord is a God who knows. And you know why it's so important that she says that? It's because she's not telling God something he doesn't know. Please write that down. Remember that. Memorize that. Whatever you ask of God, please beware that he's, you're not informing him of something he's not aware of. Whatever you are telling him. Now, let me mess with your mind a little bit. If God is infinite, he is. If God exists in every moment of time simultaneously, he does. When he created the, the very foundation of the earth, in Genesis chapter 1, he knew you. He knew your prayer. There's nothing you're telling him that he hasn't experienced or been there already. And so when we come before God, just remember, just remind yourself, God knows. God knows. Right? He knows. And so Hannah says the same thing, that he is a God that knows. Now look at verse uh, 6 to 8. This is kind of interesting what she does here. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth, but he humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. There is something uh, that's happening here. It's a literary thing that they use in Hebrew. It's called coupling. And this idea of two opposite concepts that come to each other. So when you read through the Bible sometimes, you will see uh, opposites happen. And the writers are using that to create tension. Right? Whenever you create, whenever you say life and death, you are creating a tension of what's between them. So when Hannah's praying here, she is saying something very important. She's talking about something that's great and something that's not so great. So look what she says. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humble and exalts. In that one sentence are a lot of things that happen in our lives. And what Hannah is saying in her prayer is, God is in both. In your deepest suffering, God is there. In the time of your exaltation and your rejoicing, God is there. There isn't a moment emotionally or in your life that God isn't present. And Hannah declares this, and I don't know if she's, again, I don't know if Hannah knew that her prayer would be written down, but she's declaring this, and I think this is so wise of her. Because when we pray, we have to realize that there are times in our lives like, you know, we can be up and down. Whether it's finances, relationships, whatever it be, jobs, school, right? We, we, we know what we want to do, and we don't know what we don't want to do. We have this job, we don't have this job, right? We don't, we don't know. What Hannah says here is so important when it comes to our prayer life is that in both tensions and in between, God is there. He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with the princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Now, look what she does after the first sentence. The first sentence, she says, in the tension, God exists. But in the second sentence, she says, God tends to be drawn to need and hurt. It's like, 
It's like God loves us or something. That when we, his children, are in pain and suffering, we are drawn close to him. That's why the Bible says the, God is close to the brokenhearted. And so Hannah in the next statement says, listen, and he takes those in the ash heap. Now, an ash heap is this, this visual image, this metaphor of absolute suffering and despair. Right? When Job, in the book of Job, when all this calamity happens to him, he puts on sackcloth, which is very uncomfortable. I don't re- recommend it as a fashion statement. And pours ash on his head. And this is a visual sign that he is in mourning, that he is in despair. Hannah says that God takes those individuals and he puts them up to the highest royalty. That he elevates them as his, at, in, in his good plan and his good will. There is no room for why when, we trust in our, when our trust is in God. In want and in plenty, suffering and praise, God is present. If you believe God loves you and cares for you, then our faith isn't shaken when our requests aren't answered as we expect. Did did you see that? That's good. I I think I might have wrote that, but that's actually kind of good, right? Think about what it's saying there. If you know that God is in in, in the suffering and in in, in the rejoicing, in the pain and the joy, then the trust happens not because the outcome but because of who God is. And if you know God is in both, the trust increase. The trust is not outcome-based faith. We've talked about this at Uptown Community Church. We don't believe in uh, outcome-based faith, faith that gets you to manipulate God. In other words, what we try to say is, Lord, you are God, and this world is full of sin. And I don't know the outcome, but you are God, and I am your servant. And whatever happens, yet will I rejoice with you. Right? Hannah says the same thing in that moment. Hannah is making that uh, declarative statement. Now look at this here. This is where we see how how incredible Hannah actually is. When her husband, Elkanah, went up with all his family to offer the animal sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Now, remember what Hannah said to God. God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. Now, I, tr- I tried to look this up, and I couldn't get a quite uh, a date here. But in Jewish custom, uh, weaning is breastfeeding, right? And so a child could be breastfed, uh, depending on his ability to survive, uh, apart from not able to take in uh, milk. It could have been from 18 months to five years. We don't know. But we do know that a child would be in that time period. Now, what Hannah is saying to her husband, Elkanah, is this. When the next time I go to the temple in Shiloh, Samuel goes with me, and I give him to God forever. Imagine this for a second. How often do you pray or ask God for something, and maybe it actually happens? Do you then follow through with whatever that is? Do you then turn your face to God and say, Lord, I trust you. God, I I, I worship you. And God, you've blessed me in this, you've done this, and I am going to continue to be faithful to you. Hannah got her son. And many of us would be tempted in that moment to say, okay, I got the answer to my prayer. That's it. All the stuff I said to get up to this point, God knows. I, I, you know, I was, I was a little out of my mind there. I, you know, we don't have to worry about that. Hannah refused to turn her back on God. And she gave back to God the blessing that he gave to her. Now, this is a theme you see in prayer in the Old Testament, that God answers the prayer of the people, and he waits to see what they do with the answer. He waits to see what they do with the answer. This is why Jesus, 
when he taught, when he preached, when he did his miraculous signs, all the people wanted was the next sign, the next miracle, the next entertainment, right? And he refused to offer that to them. He did what he did in orders that the kingdom of heaven would come because he knew his plan. But he also knew people's hearts, and their hearts are more, give me more, more, entertain me more, right? And that's how God, that's how we, we as human beings operate. Now look at this in verse 18 and 19. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer annual sacrifices. What's the, what's the scripture saying to us? This boy that she wanted so badly, this child that she prayed desperately for, she only got to see once a year. Once a year when she went to the temple. And what does she do? What every mother does is make sure he's wearing the proper clothing. She, she makes him a robe that fits his age. And she goes there. And just, just imagine that meeting. There's this five, six-year-old boy in the temple. She's given him over to God. The, the actual technical phrase is, an, is she's, he's had a Nazarite vow, right? His hair will grow, and he will be a minister before God. Imagine when Hannah comes up to the temple in Shiloh, and maybe there in the distance, she sees this little toddler running around, and something swells up within her. That's the answer to her prayer. And she gets closer, and he sees her, and his eyes light up. It's mom. Mom's here. She's bringing me some food and some clothes. I get to, I get to hang. And we don't know how long she would stay in Shiloh, but that, I, I guarantee you, if she's like any other mother, she doesn't let that kid go for the week or the two weeks that she's there, right? She's holding. She's hugging. She's being fed. She's looking at him, right? She, just all the love she saved up for the year just pours on this child. But at the end of it, she has to leave. And the child is given back to God for his work. And she goes home overwhelmed with God's provision, but still faithful to the vow that she made. How tempting would it be to take him home with you? I, I, don't, I don't know if I could do it. I, I, I don't know. Right? Like, it's like you have to leave this child, and you have to give him back to God. Now, the Bible does say that God does bless her with more children afterwards. So it's she, it, this is not her only child. But it's just a beautiful image of her faithfulness with that. Hannah received her answer but was faithful to her promise. God answered her prayer and used it to bless an entire nation. What if when God answers your prayer, the answer isn't for you? It's for everybody else. How incredible would that be? Let me close this morning. I was, uh, I was trying to find a verse that summarizes prayer in the Old Testament. And I came across this one rabbi. Um, as you guys know that when I study the Old Testament, I, I tend to go to rabbinical commentaries because I'm, I'm curious, I'm interested to know how a Hebrew, how Jewish people understand their stories. And one rabbi used this verse, and I thought it was really good, and I want to give it to you. In First Chronicles 16.11, it says this. This is how he says, this is what prayer is. Look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. This is a uh, prayer by a guy named Asaph. You'll recognize his name because a lot of the Psalms in your book of Psalms, which is a book of prayer, is written by Asaph. And this is when they are, before the ark, they're, they're consecrating it, right? And he says this line, and the rabbi says this. Whatever you understand about prayer, it's in this one verse here. Look to the Lord and his strength. Look to the Lord. 
Where does my strength come from? From God. What do I possess? Nothing. What am I in control of? Nothing. What do I, what can I, what, what outcomes do I have in this world? Nothing. Look to the Lord in strength. But now look at the second part. Seek his face always. You know what's interesting about Christianity amongst other religions? We seek God's face, face to face. That's a conversation. That's prayer. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to talk. He wants us to have a conversation. And it's not about, you know, oh, Lord, thou is holiest in thy grocery store or whatever it would be, however, we, however secret words we want to say. It's like, Lord, this day just sucked. I blew it today. God, I'm so sorry. Like, like it just, it's just from the heart. I love that uh, Michael Jr., he's, he's a comedian, he's a Christian comedian. I love what he said there about someone swearing. Because I, as a youth pastor, when, when, you, when you have some youth, they will say things in their prayers. You're like, eh, no parents are around, right? Okay, we're not recording this. Okay, okay, whatever. It doesn't matter, right? But there's this honesty. And when you look at David's prayer, what does he say to God sometimes? God, are you, are you hearing impaired? God, are you sleeping? And sometimes David says, God, do you even care? The Bible says about David that he was a man after God's own heart. But what is David first and foremost? He's honest before God because that stuff's already there. And so David doesn't bother hiding it, suppressing it, pushing it down. He says, Lord, it just feels like to me that you've forgotten me. It feels like I'm praying to the, the, to the cave ceiling. Do you even care? Are you listening? And David says those things time and time again. And we can say those things. And God's not offended. God doesn't need a safe space, okay? He's okay. He can take whatever you want to say, whatever language you want to say. Just get it out. Because that's prayer and that's the beginning of a conversation. Your disappointments, your hurts, your, your doubts, your fears. This is the language of prayer. This is the language of God. We don't need to hide this. We don't need to suppress it. We don't need to deny it. But we do need to tell it to our God, to seek his face, to have that conversation. Let's pray. So your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. We do this every week. And we do it just so I can give you an opportunity to meditate, to think, to ponder, to reflect. Our prayer lives can sometimes define who God is to us. If we ask God for things, we are looking for solutions, and that's nothing wrong with that. But that's only part of it. The five kinds of prayers kind of tells us the depth of our prayer lives. And the majority of those five types are praise, honor, blessing, glory, just to praise God for who he is. Sometimes it's kind of a neat discipline, kind of a neat little test just to Try to pray, but not ask God for anything. Just to thank Him. Lord, I just thank you. Thank you for the sunrise. I thank you for that dog I saw. I thank you for just to thank Him. And the next day, just to praise. I'm not going to ask. Because the petition part, we get. It's the other parts that God wants to develop in us. A rich and deep prayer life is a prayer life that finds different ways to communicate to God, to seek his face every day. And please hear me very clearly. Some of you in this room, you carry deep burdens for loved ones, for children, for spouses, for whoever it would be. 
and you've been praying and you've been praying and you, you question, you doubt whether God's listening. I, I, I want you to know, just like Hannah, year after year, God listened, but it was his timing. And Hannah got her answer with Samuel. But I also know, too, that if she didn't get the answer, she would still come before God. It's like, you are God. I'm your father. This series is for us to be awakened to the understanding that nothing in this world is accomplished without prayer. Nothing. I'm utterly convinced of this. I think the only reason I planted this church is so I could increase my prayer life. And trust me, I can't stop praying now. There's so much I want God to do. So much I want him to accomplish. My prayer for you, my hope for you, is that each of you would begin to understand the depth, the width, the humanity of prayer. And some of you have to just to confess right now and just say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I've taken prayer so lightly. Lord, I'm so sorry that all I do is ask you for things. Lord, I'm so sorry that I don't even believe that you're listening. Just confess. And then, my hope, my utter, utter hope for all of you, that you begin to enact the discipline of prayer. It is a discipline. You have to create space for it. You have to make space for God. If you do not, he will get crowded out with everything else in life. Guaranteed, every time. No questions asked. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I thank you. I thank you, I thank you, I thank you. I thank you for each person here. I thank you for their stories. I thank you for the trials, the testing, and the temptations. I thank you for the failures. It's not something we thank you for often, God, but I do thank you for that. Because in those moments, we call out to you. And those are our reminders that God is present, that God is near us. So, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for those things that I wish never happened. I thank you for those things that have hurt me. I thank you, Lord. Because in all those situations, in all those circumstances, you were there. Lord, I thank you for this young woman, Hannah. I thank you for her prayer, her story. Lord, I thank you that by seeing her heart, by seeing her faithfulness, I can learn something about what I need to accomplish today. Lord, I pray that First Chronicles 16 would be our prayer, that we would seek you for your strength and look to your face always. And Lord, for the prayer requests that are represented in this room right now, holy God, maker of all things, creator of all good and perfect things, redeemer, savior, I lift them up to you now for the loved ones who don't know you, for the financial things that are messed up, for the spiritual things that we need, for all of these things, Lord. I thank you that you are a good father, a loving father, compassionate and merciful, forgiving us time and time and time again. I pray, God, that you would stir within us an attitude of prayer, a discipline of prayer, that, God, that all we could do is fall to our knees and call out to you day after day. 
Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.